Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, Year of War and Peace. Oh, it's a bit late tonight. I may have fallen asleep a little bit. User Sufjan Fan has posted a really cool picture. Um, very lucky to be vacationing a little further north with my partner. Has this physical copy of the Moore translation, and it's just in a snow-filled. Looks like a uh, like a winter pine forest. You know, there's no leaves. There's just kind of bare pines with snow on all the branches, and in the background, a, a log cabin looking thing. Damn, that's really cool. I love seeing that. I want more people to do that. Post pictures of where you're from and where you're reading your copy of War and Peace. I think it's really cool. Uh, okay, what are we talking about here? Book three, chapter nine. In this chapter, Boris is taking pains to improve his ranks. His rank. Do you think he will be successful? What do you think the old general to whom Prince Andre was speaking made of Boris? Any predictions about Prince Dolgurakov's role in this? Did I already say that? <laughs> man, did I already say this? But the reason I'm so late tonight is because I fell asleep on the couch. Oopsie doopsie. So it's four in the morning and I'm doing my podcast. Golly. Uh, and um, my brain is so frazzled that I can't even remember what I have and haven't already said. Good news is I will be reading um, the Andalus translation of chapter 10 after this. Managed to get another chapter translated. All right, Acoustic Eel says this. Uh, a third was playing a Viennese waltz on the clavichord, while the fourth, playing on the clavichord, sang the tune. Get off the piano and don't set your drinks on it either. I'm assuming they are having something to drink and have set those on there too. I don't get upset about a lot of things, but using a piano as a couch or coffee table is one of them. End rant. Wow, acoustic heels coming out of the woodwork there with a piano rant. I love it. Um, Korsha has posted a couple of portraits. The Emperor Alexander of Russia. Here's a picture of him. Okay, looks like a young, posh teenager. <laughs> Prince Peter Dolgurakov. Oh, that's a real person as well. Looks quite young as well. Adam Sarovstovsky. They all just look like young, rich people from the 1800s. Ripster66 says, I commend Boris for trying his best to improve his position, but it seems a difficult task when he doesn't have much in the way of connections. Prince Andre likes helping ambitious newcomers out, and I love that he's trying to open some doors for him. The best part of the chapter to me was Boris's discovery of the hidden power in the military, the support staff. Watching a general be at Prince Andre's mercy was an eye-opening experience. This knowledge might serve him well in the future. The modern equivalent may be the administrative assistant who controls an executive schedule. Get them on your side and you have better access to the exec. Piss them off and you might never get an appointment or budget or hire. I don't know if Dolgurikov will ultimately help Boris or not. He didn't seem too interested in the idea now, but he was also distracted by the exciting prospect of attacking Bonaparte's forces. I think the equivalent of that for me is the office lady who you speak to when you call a school. I'm always calling schools to try to arrange to come there and do my creative writing program. You know, sometimes it's uh, a lead, sometimes it's a cold call, like just literally a cold call sales call. 
um, or, you know, a warm lead or sometimes they've even contacted me about doing it and I'm just trying to get back in touch to lock it in. But the first point of call is when you call a school, you just get the office lady and they are like guard dogs. They're so hard to get past sometimes. It's um, all they ever say is she's in a meeting. 100%. Like, uh, yeah, hey, it's Andrew. I'm just trying to um, speak to, you know, whoever it is. Um, you know, the vice principal, Rebecca. Um, oh, yeah, I'll just see if she's available. And then I sit down and go, um, just wait. I'm just mime, like mouthing it to myself. She's in a meeting. She's, she's for sure going to come back and say she's in a meeting. And then she'll come back and go, oh, Andrew, are you there? Yeah, she's just in a meeting at the moment. And it's like, they're, no, they're not. They just said, oh, I'll take a message, tell him I'm in a meeting. 100% of the time. <laughs> they're never in meetings. Who's in a meeting all the time? Anyway, that's what that is to me. Sorry, I just went on a massive rant, but that is like a daily annoyance to me. The term, she's in a meeting. Stop saying it. Stop, it's like a compulsion. Stop saying she's in a meeting. Just say, oh, doesn't want to talk to you. <laughs> it's one of those things that I feel like they just feel like they have to say that, that line. It's like when they hand you your Maccas and they say, um, there's that one. That's what they say. Every time you go through a McDonald's drive through in Australia or, a, you know, Hungry Jack's or whatever, as they hand you the food, they say, there's that one. <laughs> 100%. If you're in Australia, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's that one. If you eat a lot of junk food, especially. And I, I sometimes go, oh, is that that one? <laughs> As I take it. Oh, that's that one, is it? The one I'm holding is that one. Is that that one or is this this one? Which one's this one? Is this this one or that one? That is that one one? Yeah, cool. Oh, that's that one. Oh, I'm in a ranty mood tonight. <laughs> I'm not even talking about war and peace at the moment. Just talking nonsense. Uh, Ika 100 said, I reckon Boris will be successful eventually if he survives all this. It seems he's on the right track here. Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? All these people seem like young kind of up-and-comers, movers and shakers, but then they're also just running around with cannons and bullets flying around their heads. So you don't know who's going who's, who's gonna to make it and who's not. Jamur says, under cover of obtaining help of this kind for another, which from pride he would never accept for himself, he kept in touch with the circle which confers success and which attracted him. A philosophy true to this day. Simple acts of mentorship are nothing but win-win. What a beautiful sentiment that is. All right, I want to keep reading <clears throat> because it is four in the morning and I'm tired. Um, sorry I wasted most of the discussion talking about uh, McDonald's and office ladies at schools. Chapter 10 goes like this. <clears throat> at Sparrow's Fart on November 16th, Denisov's squadron, which was the one Nicholas Rostov was in and one that was part of Prince Bagration's d detachment, moved on from where they had crashed for the night, moving forward into action as planned and having gone about two-thirds of a mile behind the other column, halted on the high road. Rostov saw the Cossacks go past and then the first and second squadrons of Hussars and infantry battalions and artillery followed them forward and then Generals Bagration and Dolgurikov rode past with their adjutants. All the fear he'd experienced before fighting, just like the last times, all the mental battle to overcome that fear, all his dreams of distinguishing himself as a true blue Hussar in this battle had been a waste of energy. 
The squadron was to remain in reserve. Nicholas Rostov sucked all day, moping about in a foul mood. At nine in the morning he heard firing and shouts of hurrah from the front and saw wounded men being brought back, not all that many of them though. And then finally he watched a whole detachment of French cavalry being brought in, convoyed by a hundred Cossacks. Evidently the fight was over, and though it wasn't a huge battle, we'd still won the fuck out of it. The men and officers who came back were harping on about what a brilliant victory it had been, and how they'd occupied the town of Wischau and captured a whole French squadron. After a freezing cold night, it had fined up into a sunny and bright day, and the cheerful, bright autumn weather set the tone for the inflowing news of victory, coming not only in the form of first-hand accounts, but also being conveyed by the shit-eating grins on the faces of the soldiers, officers, generals and adjutants who were passing Rostov on their way in or out. And Nicholas, who had wasted his energy being terrified of an upcoming battle, now spent that happy day doing bugger all and being depressed. Come here, Wostov, let's dwell our sorrows, shouted Denisov, who had popped a squat by the roadside with a flask and some grub. The officers gathered around Denisov's canteen, eating and chatting. Look, they're bringing another one, said one of the officers, gesturing at a captured French dragoon who was being brought in on foot by two Cossacks. One of them was leading a ripper of a French horse by the brittle. Evidently, he'd taken it off the prisoner. Oi, sell us that horse, mate, shouted Denisov to the Cossack. If you're keen, your honour. The officers got up and stood round the Cossacks and their prisoner. The French dragoon was a young fellow, an Alsatian who spoke French with a German accent. He was all hot and bothered, red-faced, and when he heard some French words spoken, he quickly started speaking to them, addressing first one, then another. He said it wasn't his fault he was captured. His corporal screwed him over by sending him to grab some horse cloths, even though he'd told him that the Russians were there. He added several times, but don't hurt my little horse, and patted the animal. It was clear to see that he didn't quite understand where he was. Now he apologised for having been captured, and now, imagining he was speaking to his own officers, he insisted on his soldierly discipline and gusto in service. He brought along with him to our rearguard all the freshness and the vibe of the French army, which was weird to our lot. The Cossacks sold the horse for two gold pieces, and Rostov, being the richest of the officers, now that he had received his money, was the one who snapped it up. But don't hurt my little horse, said the Alsatian, a, uh, good-naturedly to Rostov when the horse was handed over to the hussar. Rostov reassured the dragoon with a smile and gave him some money. Ali, Ali, said the Cossack, touching the prisoner's arm to make him keep moving. The Emperor, the Emperor, was suddenly heard among the hussars. Everyone started spazzing out, and Rostov saw coming up the road behind him several riders with white plumes in their hats. A moment later, everyone had taken their place and were waiting. Rostov didn't know or remember running to his place and mounting his horse. Instantly, his sookiness at not being part of the action and his bitterness at the people who had disappeared, instantly, every thought of himself vanished. He, I need a comma there. There we go. He was filled with happiness at being so near to the emperor. He felt that this nearness was enough to make up for the crappy day he'd had. 
He was as happy as a lover being reunited with their sweetheart, looking without looking around, because he dared not to, he was ecstatically aware of his approach. He felt it not only because he could hear the hoofs of the approaching cavalcade, but because as he came nearer, everything became brighter, happier, more significant, and a buzz filled the space around him. Nearer and nearer to him came that sun shedding beams of majestic light around, and already he could feel those beams enveloping him, and heard his voice, that kindly, calm and majestic voice that was at the same time just a normal voice. And as if to match the way Rostov felt, everyone was dead silent as the emperor spoke. The Pavlograd Hussars? he asked. The reserves, sire, replied a voice, a really shit voice compared to the one that said the Pavlograd Hussars. The emperor drew up face to face with Rostov and stopped. Alexander's face was even more beautiful now than it had been three days earlier at the review. His face had the sparkle of youth, such innocent youth, that it suggested the liveliness of a fourteen-year-old boy, and yet somehow it was the face of a majestic emperor. Casually, while he was looking over the squadron, the emperor's eyes met Rostov's, and rested on them for about two seconds. Whether or not he was seeing what was happening in Rostov's soul, Rostov was pretty sure the Emperor knew everything. At any rate, his baby blues did a full two-second gaze at Rostov. A gentle light poured from them. Then, all at once, he raised his eyebrows, gave his horse a tap with his left foot, and galloped on. When he heard gunfire in the vanguard, the young Emperor couldn't contain his desire to be there at the battle. And in spite of the protests from his his courtiers. At noon, having separated from the third column which he was proceeding with, he rode to the vanguard. Before he reached the hussars, several adjutants met him to tell the news of their successful action. This battle, in which they managed to capture a French squadron, was being touted as a massive win over the French, and so the emperor and the whole army, especially with the smoke hanging over the battlefield, thought that the French had gone running with their tail between their legs. A few minutes after the Emperor had gone past, the Pavlograd division was ordered to advance. In Wischau itself, a crappy little German town, Rostov saw the Emperor again. In the marketplace, where there had been some pretty full-on shooting before the Emperor's arrival, were several dead and wounded soldiers, ones that they hadn't had time to pick up off the ground yet. The Emperor, with his suite of officers and courtiers with him, was riding a bobtailed chestnut mare, a different one from the one he'd been on at the review, and bending to one side he gracefully held a a gold lorgnette to his eyes and took a squeeze at the soldier who lay prone with blood all over his uncovered head. It didn't seem right to Rostov that this wounded soldier, so dirty, coarse and revolting, should be so close to the Emperor. Rostov saw how the Emperor shuddered as if a chill had run along his spine, and how his left foot tapped convulsively against the horse's side with the spur, and how the well-trained horse looked pretty chillaxed about the whole situation. An adjutant dismounting lifted the soldier under the arms to get him onto the stretcher that had been brought. The soldier groaned. Gently, gently, come on, be gentle with him, said the emperor, apparently in more pain than the dying soldier, and he rode away. Rostov saw that tears were filling the emperor's eyes and heard him, as he rode away, say to Tsar 
Torsky. War is bloody awful, bloody awful. Qual teril bil chose quella guri. Oh, excuse me. The troops of the vanguard were positioned in front of Wischau, within sight of the enemy's lines, which all day long had given up ground to us with minimal firing. The emperor announced his gratitude to the vanguard, promising rewards to all, and the men were given a double ration of vodka. The campfire crackled, and the soldiers' songs were even happier than the previous night. Denisov celebrated his promotion to the rank of major, and Rostov, who was already half-cut, proposed a toast to the emperor's health at the end of the feast. Not to our sovereign, the emperor, as they say at official dinners, he said, but to the health of our sovereign, the true, blue, beautiful man. Let's have a drink to his health and to the inevitable defeat of the French. If we fought before, he said, not letting those Frenchies pass like we did at Schongraburn, then... There's nothing we can't do with him at the front. We'd all gladly die for him, am I right, gentlemen? Maybe I'm saying this wrong, I'm pretty sloshed. But that's just what I reckon, and I reckon it's what you reckon too. To the health of Alexander I, hurrah! Hurrah! rang the enthusiastic voices of the officers. And the old cavalry captain, Kirsten, shouted just as loud and enthusiastically as the twenty-year-old Rostov. When the officers had emptied their and smashed their glasses, Kirsten filled more, and in shirt sleeves and breeches went, glass in hand, to the soldier's bonfire, and with long grey with his long grey moustache, his white chest hairs popping from his shirt, his open shirt, he stood in a majestic as all buggery pose, the light of the campfire around him, waving his arm in the air. Lads, here's to our sovereign the Emperor and to victory over our enemies. Hurrah! he cried in his sexy old hussar's baritone. The hussars crowded round went, crowded round and went berserk, screaming and whooping in response. Later that, late that night, when they'd all separated, Denisov, with his short hand, gave his favourite, Rostov, a pat on the shoulder. There's no one to fall in love with on a campaign, so he's gone and fallen in love with the Tsar. He said, Don't make jokes, Denisov, cried Rostov. This is such a divine, such a beautiful feeling, such a... I believe it, mate, I do, I agree, I approve. Nah, you don't get it. Rostov got up and started wandering around the campfires, dreaming about how frickin' awesome it would be to die before the, gem- before the Emperor. Not even while saving the Emperor's life or anything like that, he dared not even dream of that, literally just to die with the Emperor watching... He really was massively in love with the Tsar, and with the glory of being a Russian soldier, and with all his future triumph. And he wasn't the only one who felt that way in those memorable days leading up to the Battle of Austerlitz. About 90% of the men in the Russian army were in love with their Tsar. Sorry, about 90% of the men in the Russian army were in love with their Tsar, although they were less insane about it, and with the glory of the Russian army. All right, there we go. There's a chapter for you. Ah, it's so much easier to read my own version of this. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? You'd expect as much, but (laughs) I really do enjoy reading my own one a lot more. I just love my own... Do I just love myself? Is that all it is? Hey, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? 
Anyway, let's uh, have a say about that over at the subreddit. Thanks for listening and I will see you tomorrow.